Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Happy December, folks. I know we are well into the run-up towards that dreaded C-word Christmas. I hope you're kind of enjoying the opportunity to stay out of the kind of cold and miserable and dark weather outside. I'm hoping that you've got the Christmas shopping out of the way and you can sit back with a glass of something and enjoy what promises to be a brilliant episode. Because I am joined by Andrew Field to talk about the Battle of Catra Bra. You might be a little bit surprised by this because yes, the anniversary is obviously in June, but I particularly like Andrew's work, which for me means that I'm quite happy to come back to Waterloo, even though we have sort of done it to death in the past. Andrew is a retired army colonel who's an author of a host of books on the Waterloo campaign, crucially from the French perspective, that perspective that ironically, quite often gets pushed to the side. They include Grouchy's Waterloo, there's a whole podcast to be had on that, uh, Waterloo Route and Retreat, The French at Waterloo, Eyewitness Accounts, that's in two volumes, and that's besides Talavera, Wellington's first victory in Spain. Today though, we are discussing his book on Catra Bra, The Prelude to Waterloo. Andrew, welcome back, it's been a heck of a long time since you were on here, myth-busting Waterloo for us. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Thank you. I've been very busy since then um, and uh, working on um, some more presentations and another book. So uh, I've been keeping myself really busy. Absolutely. We just had a good kind of half an hour's chat before we started recording about uh, all kinds of interesting things and uh, plans to have you back again in the future. But let's dive in, shall we? Because I've kind of touched on this already in, in that little preamble. If there's one campaign in the Napoleonic era that could be said to have been done to death, it is probably the Waterloo campaign, but that's not quite right, is it? Because the Battle of Waterloo itself perhaps has been wildly overdone, particularly from that regurgitation of the Anglo-centric perspective, which is why I particularly like your work. It offers a, a very, you know, kind of fresh 
and important perspective that gets pushed to the side. So in the process of all of this, catch a bra does sort of tend to be glossed over in those stereotypical works. You know, it's sort of this prelude to the big one, inverted commas. Why do you think that's traditionally been the case? Um, okay, well, I, I think there are probably uh, four reasons why uh, this is so. First of all, I think having studied all the, the uh, sort of first-hand accounts, or as many as I can, um, people that wrote about, the, or soldiers that wrote about the campaign, officers that wrote campaign, inevitably concentrated on what they saw as the big, major, cataclysmic battle. And certainly from a French perspective, that was true, because of course that was such a huge defeat. It was people trying to come to terms with that. And Quatre Bras, from the French perspective, therefore, was very much pushed into, into the sort of shadows. Secondly, of course, there's a matter of scale. Uh, if you look at the numbers engaged um, from the from sort of Wellington's army in the French perspective and the French um, perspective, they're probably half the numbers and that's not even um, talking about the Prussians. So it was a much smaller scale battle. Um, just, of course, Waterloo itself was that final decisive defeat of Napoleon. And, and therefore, you know, that in itself sort of make sure it hits the headlines. And also I think that Quatre Bras was, and I think we'll probably talk about this later, it was no great victory for either side. And so neither side had much to, to gloat about or to uh, pro proclaim. And therefore it, it, it tends to get glossed over. But I think you look, I, I know from chatting to you earlier, Zach, I, I agree with you that at the end of the day, if you're gonna have a, a full understanding of the Battle of Waterloo, it's imperative to have a thorough understanding of the whole campaign. And that includes not just Battle of Quatre Bras, but also Ligny uh, and Wavre as well. Indeed, indeed. We could rant, well, I certainly could rant for many hours on how, if you don't understand the implications of Quatre Bras and Ligny, you don't understand the Waterloo campaign and you don't know how everything turns on a knife edge in the aftermath of it. But that, as I say, is, is a rant for another day. Let's consider kind of the nitty gritty of this battle, shall we, and start with those sort of key figures and their mindsets ahead of the Waterloo campaign. And I'm going to kind of start with the French perspective here. And Ney is the obvious starting point, isn't he? You know, what kind of health is Ney in? Because, you know, we think about psychology and the significance of the psychological dimension and the way that people have kind of grown to appreciate that significance in recent years. There has been a lot of talk about him potentially suffering PTSD by this point, sort of in the wake of the Russian campaign. Where is Ney in kind of the course of his career and his kind of peaks and troughs in, in success? Okay, I mean, he's an interesting character. I've got to say, I think as far as the era we're talking about, this whole PTSD, combat fatigue aspect is somewhat overplayed. I don't, I'm not suggesting it didn't exist then, but at the end of the day, his level of experience and trauma that he'd experienced over his career was no different to many, if not most, of Napoleon's senior and junior commanders. So I think they're very different people in those days. So I, I wouldn't try to, to claim that he was suffering from PTSD. But having said that, his performance during the Waterloo campaign was not particularly inspirational. And I think this is probably down to two reasons, really. First of all, politically, perhaps that's the right word, uh, and secondly, militarily. So politically, 1814, he pledges allegiance to, to Louis the 18th, 
uh, and thinks he's done with Napoleon. Napoleon returns, uh, Ney promises Louis he's gonna bring Napoleon back to Paris in an iron cage, and then changes sides, changes his mind, uh, and throws his lot in with, with Napoleon. But what must have been going through his mind, even while he was trying to decide whether that is what he should do or not, is that question of what's going to happen if Napoleon is defeated. Anyway, it was a it was a leap of faith, really, uh, and one he may not have been totally confident in. At the end of the day, the odds of Napoleon succeeding were were you know overwhelming, probably not just whether Napoleon's actually going to be able to take power, but whether the rest of Europe were going to allow him to, to stay on the throne if that's what he was going to, to do. So that's going to be playing on his mind. And as things go on, as the campaign goes on, is this going the way I want them? What's going to happen to me if this all goes horribly wrong? Um, and also, when Napoleon does take power again, he does somewhat snub Ney and ignores him. Uh, and to be honest with you, I have no doubt in my mind that he only calls uh, Ney to the army very late. I think it was the 11th, he wrote, 11th of June he wrote to him because Napoleon was desperately short of experienced senior commanders. Many had chosen to stay loyal to Louis and many others had decided not to, to uh, serve again. And Napoleon was really scratching, scratching around. So I think that was behind it. And that too might have been preying on his mind. As far as militarily is concerned, of course, he gets, he gets called forward on the 11th. He gets there on about the 14th. He's handed a huge command, uh, the left wing, about 40,000 plus men. And yet he had no staff. He had two aide de camp, that's all, one of whom, a colonel, had to serve as his, um, his chief staff. Normally, for a marshal, that would have been a, a major or lieutenant general. He doesn't know any of his senior commanders. Uh, he doesn't know what formations make up his command. He doesn't know the men in them. He doesn't know the units, commanders. He's really thrown in at the, at the deep end. Um, and so he was going to struggle to exercise the command that he was given as well. So, you know, I think really um, the late, his late appointment just highlights the shortage that uh, Napoleon had in his, uh, in his most senior commanders. Was he the right person for the job or was it a case that he was just the only person for the job? You know, were there better qualified individuals who could perhaps have done a better job with the left wing of the army? Or was it a case of, you know, Ney's just, I, I need someone, anyone, Ney's got the experience, it'll have to be him. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that's one that's been discussed quite a lot. I think Sult had a great, um, you know, great experience as a corps commander, uh, and he would have managed as an army commander indeed, uh, and would have uh, handled a, a wing perfectly competently. Um, and of course, Davout, who was left as a, the Minister of War um, back in in uh, in Paris, again, he would have he would have been outstanding, I, I don't doubt. So I'm not sure that he was the best choice, but Napoleon clearly decided Davout was vital to have holding the, the reins of power, if you like, back in Paris and pulling that all together and keeping a keeping a grip of the rest of the army as well as the army that Napoleon was was um, commanding uh, and that he needed an experienced um, uh, chief of staff and with the loss of Berthier uh, who'd been his chief of staff for over 20 years before that um, there weren't too many that offered him 
a, a strong alternative and I think probably that sort was was probably the best option for him and that left him short of field commanders and everyone knows that that name was very popular in the army uh, and had a great reputation uh, you know in the field. And what about other commanders on the French side at Catrebras? I'm thinking of people like Jerome Bonaparte, Kellerman, Derlon. Give those folks who perhaps aren't familiar um, with the history and, and these names just a kind of a sense of these men's careers and their reputations. Mm. I mean, that's <laughs> that little list of people that you give me there is just a, just highlights perfectly this problem that Napoleon had in appointing experienced, dependable formation commanders. His brother, Jerome, had little experience commanding a division and little experience commanding a corps, and he got sacked from doing both. Um, he, so he had very little command experience in the field. He joined the Navy originally. So he was had very mixed um, a career as a formation commander. He was not highly regarded by his fellow uh, generals. Um, and Napoleon allocated him a very experienced chief of staff uh, in order to keep an eye on him and to make sure that he was being pushed in the right direction. So, you know, Jerome as a, as a divisional commander, and in fact, commanding the strongest division, uh, line division in the in the army, you know, that just shows how short he was of really competent divisional commanders. Kellerman, yeah, the hero of Marengo, where he saved Napoleon uh, from defeat, but he had, throughout his career, he'd been critical uh, of Napoleon. Uh, he'd thrown in his lot uh, with uh, Louis in 1814, and he had tried to rally the army against Napoleon when Napoleon returned. Um, and so, naturally, Napoleon wouldn't have wanted to appoint him to command, but Napoleon was desperately short of experienced, heavy cavalry commanders, and Napoleon wouldn't have argued that Kellerman was very capable at doing that. Um, and therefore, yeah, he commanded the heavy cavalry corps, uh, but here was a man that perhaps Napoleon couldn't wholly trust. And then perhaps Derlon, uh, very loyal, and therefore probably Napoleon uh, didn't hesitate to allocate him a corps, very experienced divisional commander, very experienced corps commander uh, in the peninsula, but had spent half his career being beaten by the British down there and had a reputation of being various, rather ponderous uh, and unimaginative. And I think his um, his performance in 1815 really just showed that that sort of judgment of him was pretty, pretty correct, really. And of course, he he uh, he, as we'll discuss later, I think, um, you know, his role on the 16th um, just really under, underlined his shortcomings. Absolutely. There is a whole we've got a whole segment on Durlong coming, folks. Just 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 hold your horses, sit and, and wait that one out, because we are not going to let that stone go unturned. Let's turn to the Anglo-Dutch side now. I want to sidestep Wellington. People are going to be shocked to hear me say that. Yes, Wellington being pushed to the side of this. He gets enough coverage. I think there are far more interesting conversations for us to have about some of the others. And I want to start with Picton, partly because he dies early at Waterloo. So this is the last battle that he sees through to the end. Where's he at physically and mentally at this point? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Picton was, if you like, a Premier League fighting divisional commander uh, during the peninsula. He, he sort of went out relatively uh, late. I think it was uh, 1810 or 1811. But he went out there at the direct request of Wellington. Wellington rated him as a as a fighting 
general. And of course, his division, the famous third division, became known as the Fighting Third. So, you know, he was a very resolute, very capable divisional commander uh, throughout the, the latter stages of the uh, of the Peninsular War, probably from about 8 to 10, 11, up until the end of 1814. He retired back to his sort of estate at the end of, uh, at the end of that campaign. And no surprise that when, Napoleon, when Wellington um, started putting his commanders back, uh, his army together uh, for 1815, that he called, again, he requested Picton. Why wouldn't you? He was a guy with a great reputation. But what is interesting is that Pict it appears that Picton was reluctant uh, to serve again uh, and wanted to retire. Um, and that he, it, I've read that he had a premonition of his death um, and uh, he was reluctant to come. I haven't seen the evidence for that, but I don't doubt that that was probably true. But what he may have been reluctant, but of course, once he got out there, like any great commander, he threw himself into the job. Uh, he threw himself into his divisional command. Uh, as you say, he took a, quite a leading role, uh, or his division took a, a leading role uh, at Quatre Bras. So I think he may have been reluctant, but I think once he was there, he was probably pretty ready to go. Absolutely. And, you know, full credit. Yes, I know Picton, controversial character, but credit to him where it is due. He takes a wound, I believe it's in the groin at Cachabra, and hides it from everybody so that he can then stay on because he knows that it's not over. So, as you say, once he's out there, he does his job to the hilt. Yeah. I want to talk about the Dutch side as well. Um, so we'll, we'll skip over some of the others on the British in the British contingent um, to focus on the Dutch. We obviously have the much maligned Prince of Orange. We've we've had a chat about that already and how we can probably thank the Sharp series for that. You've got the Comte de Rebec, you've got Proponcia. Apologies if I've mispronounced the name there. Tell us about their careers up to this point. Okay, um, Prince of Orange, uh, we can deal with re relatively quickly. Um, he uh, had been commissioned into the Prussian army when he was only 16 in 1809. He then moved to England, went to university at Oxford, joined the British army in 1811 and went to Spain to serve as one of uh, Wellington's ADCs in the rank of Colonel. Um, so he's quite young, but he's sent there as an ADC. Wellington keep a, an eye on him. Uh, and as we'll come to it, Constant Rebec was there as his mentor. Uh, he was present at a number of actions he is very quickly noted for his courage. He was quite well liked by uh, the other officers there. Of course, he was very uh, young. What I find really interesting, and again, I haven't seen uh, read much about, is that uh, during his time there, Wellington recommended that he should be attached to a brigade because working in Wellington's headquarters, he wasn't getting any command experience. He never commanded soldiers operations or anything. So he recommended that he should be attached to a brigade where he could see things at the tactical level rather than the sort of grand tactical or strategic level, which is what he was seeing uh, working with, uh, with, with Wellington. Um, but he didn't actually do that. And I don't know why he didn't do it. Wellington wrote to horse guards suggesting this, but it didn't happen. Now it might be, that it was considered too dangerous and they didn't want the Prince of Orange killed, um, not least because, of course, politically, Britain had an eye on the future of the Netherlands as a friendly, having a friendly monarch in the future uh, in charge of the Netherlands was very attractive. So perhaps the Horse Guard said, no, too dangerous, or perhaps um, 
perhaps Prince of Orange said, no, I'd rather stick with you actually, boss. Um, and therefore, you know, and see things from your perspective and perhaps a little bit more comfortably as well. So I don't know uh, the reason behind that, but it was interesting. But of course, what that means is when he returns to, to the Netherlands in 1813, he's got campaign experience, but no command experience. He immediately gets promoted to general in the Netherlands army um, and takes over command of all the allied troops in, in the Netherlands um, in 1814, but without that, but without that command experience, very quickly makes himself unpopular with the British contingent of those forces, um, both uh, General Hill, uh, Clinton, uh, Colborne, all write uh, quite um, damning things uh, about him. Um, Wellington names him as commander of the first corps um, and that consisted, that was a big corps, two British divisions, two uh, Netherlands infantry divisions and the Netherlands cavalry division. So four divisional command, that's a, a, a big command for someone who doesn't have that sort of background. And at Waterloo, although people say he was 23, he wasn't, he was actually 22. He wasn't 23 until December, 1815. So he was commanding a very large corps, aged 22. And again, he had constant Rebecca to, to help him, but that was, a, that was a big responsibility. And I think, we all know examples where his tactical for, uh, shortcomings are, are shown in spades, but equally the feedback also, he was very courageous, both at, at Quatre Bras and, and at Waterloo, where of course he was uh, eventually um, wounded. Constant Rebecca, again, bearing in mind that, that many Dutch and Belgian generals, once France had invaded their countries and, and they had become part eventually of metropolitan France, served in the French army. Constant Rebecca was one of those who didn't. Um, he started his career, uh, military career in a Swiss regiment in the service of France. Um, but once, um, once uh, the, the, the French had invaded his own um, country, he refused to, to serve under the French. He went to the Prussians for a time. Um, and then he was appointed as mentor to the, the Prince of Orange, who of course um, at that time uh, was in Prussia and had been uh, commissioned with the Prussian army. And so those two stuck together. Now, he didn't have, Constant Rebecca didn't have an awful lot of military experience. He had very little command experience, but he was highly regarded by Wellington because of course, as he served with the Prince of Wales out in the peninsula and in Spain, Wellington saw a lot of him. So he was quite high, uh, highly regarded. And I suspect Wellington was a lot happier knowing that Constant Rebecca was to become his chief of staff through the Waterloo campaign than if he had not. And of course, really, the, the decision for the second Netherlands division to hold at, at Quatre Bras, to, to deploy there, to hold there and to resist there was really primarily the decision of Constant Rebecca not the Prince of Orange, who of course by that time uh, had um, gone to Brussels to, to warn Wellington of the attack of the French. So Constant Rebecca, high quality guy, may not have had much command experience, but a good solid chief of staff, just what the Prince of Orange um, required. Um, finally, Perponchet, another, notably another Dutch uh, general who refused to serve um, in the French army, um, once they invade in 1795, joined the Austrians before he transferred to the British. A bit of a mixed um, 
experience with them. He fought, uh, he did do some fighting in, in Germany. He went to Egypt with them. He went to Portugal and on the, on the Walter expedition. So he did have some command experience and campaign experience. Um, and, uh, but he returned to England in 1809 and then didn't really serve again until he went back to Holland in 1813 when it had been uh, to liberated. So he did have a break in his, in, uh, in his service. Uh, but again, at least he was someone that had not served the French and therefore people saw him as, as pretty uh, dependable. So before we talk about the 16th of June, we have to discuss the preceding day, right? You can't take this in its isolation because we nearly don't get, just as without a capture of Ryan Lini, you don't get a Waterloo, without the events on the 15th, you very nearly don't get a capture bra, never mind a Waterloo. So talk us through the actions of Saxe Weimar's brigade, because I personally look on this as the moment which saves the campaign for the Allies. Okay. Well, it's what a lot of people don't realize is that, that Saxe Weimar, again, 23 years old. So, um, you know, quite a junior, he was a colonel. Um, he was actually, the commander of the Orange Nassau Regiment in the Dutch Army. So he commanded a two battalion regiment within uh, the second brigade of the second Netherlands uh, division. And it was that brigade that was deployed around Quatre Bras. The real commander uh, was a chap uh, called uh, Godecker, uh, Colonel von Godecker, who was a, a Nassauer. Um, but just before the campaign opened, he got kicked by his horse and was incapacitated. Um, and so the young uh, Sax Weimar was uh, nominated to command. So here was a chap who was thrown on the sort of the day of the invasion into command of the, uh, of the brigade. And at that age, that must have been quite a big, um, quite a nervous moment for him. Uh, his brigade was deployed around Quatre Bras, but of course, the, the concentration orders had the second Netherlands division um, to concentrate at Nivelle to the west. Um, and though, therefore, you know, if his orders or if the orders had been followed, he would have left uh, Quatre Bras and that would have left the, the main road uh, from Charleroi, where the French crossed the, the border, um, into uh, up to Brussels, completely open. The Prussians had withdrawn to the east. Uh, the Allies uh, or Wellington's army were concentrating to the west, and there was that gap in between. So the decision to leave the brigade there, which was a combination of Constant Rebec, of Perponchet as divisional commander, and Saxe Weimar. Um, who commanded the, the troops on the ground there, that was, as you say, absolutely a critical decision uh, that was made um, on the 15th to, uh, to defend uh, Quatre Bras. And if that had not happened, then the, the campaign would have played out in a completely uh, different way. So we can't say that the decision saved the campaign for the Allies, but it certainly would have followed a, a fundamentally different sequence of events if the decision had not been made at those lower level of command to, to defend Quatre Bras. And there is a point to be made about the fact the French don't reach Quatre Bras, which I believe I'm right in saying was the objective for day one. Is that right? So, and if so, you know, why is that the case? I think this is still um, not fully understood in so much as we can't be absolutely sure. There many, some histories say that Ney, having taken over command of the left wing, met up with Napoleon on the 
um, on the evening of the 5th and was told to rush forward and to, uh, sorry, on the, four, on the 14th when he joined the army, to rush forward and to seize Quatre Bras. Um, there are many people that don't believe that that meeting actually took place. I think the evidence is probably that it didn't take place, but there are one or two pieces of evidence quite hard to, to um, you know, to undermine. But it, what is clear that because things were slow in the morning of the 16th is whatever Ney might have been told at that meeting, he was not to move until he had been given the executive word of command. So you know you've got to move, move now. So that I'm pretty sure didn't come until the morning. But on the, on the 15th, there's no doubt that, uh, that Ney was expecting to advance as far as Quatrebras. The, the Lancers of the Imperial Guard um, led the advance and they came into contact with the Nassau Battalion, which was based forward of Quatrebras at the small village of, of Fran. Uh, and the, the Imperial Guard Lancers had a skirmish with them. The battalion withdrew back to Quatrebras. The, the Lancers went forward and identified that there was a force at Quatrebras and then withdrew as it got dark uh, on the evening of the 15th. So Ney knew that there were troops based there, but he didn't really have is an accurate, uh, an accurate number uh, idea of how many were actually there. But there had been some fighting on the 15th, on the evening of the 15th. Um, and therefore, you know, the news was up, that was passed up to Wellington at Brussels that there had been fighting um, near Quatrebra. And that leads really nicely actually into the next question that I wanted to ask, which is about this lull that we get on the morning of the 16th. So lovely bridging work uh, from you there. You're doing my job for me. I appreciate it. Because there's this traditional kind of version of events which emphasises the fragility of the Allied position, which is true. Ney's apprehension of Wellington and sort of a missed opportunity. But the beauty of your book, of course, is that you've worked closely with the French perspective. So what's actually going on on the French side as the Allies rush to concentrate and as Wellington rides off to meet Blücher? Okay, well, Ney had been given command of the first and second corps. Uh, Ney commanded the second corps. That was a corps that was leading and it was, uh, and it stopped for the night relatively close to uh, Quatre Brown around the, the town of Gosselli with, with some troops forward at, at Fran that I've already mentioned. But for Ney, the problem was not the second corps, that was pretty well concentrated, ready to advance on the morning of the 16th. His problem really was Durland's first corps, divisions of which had been dropped off during the advance on the 15th to protect the left flank of the offensive. And Ney needed to get those divisions march forward to join the whole, so the whole of first corps were concentrated and behind the second corps so that he could advance with his full force. But some of those troops were so far back that with the need to call them forward, the time it took for them to march forward, having to file over the bridges over the Sambra River, that really held Ney up from advancing with his full core, his full wing. So that was the first point. The second point was, as I've already mentioned, although Ney may have been expecting to advance to Quatrebrat the following morning, it seems that he was to, ordered to wait until Napoleon told him to actually move because Napoleon was trying to sort out what was happening with the Prussians over on the right flank, if you like, to the east. And so Napoleon probably didn't want Ney marching off on, uh, to the west 
before he knew what was happening with the Prussians. And that does make perfect sense. Whatever, however people criticize Ney or Napoleon for being slow in the morning of the 16th, Napoleon on the morning of the 16th when it broke was still wasn't sure that the Prussians were going to fight there. And if the Prussians weren't going to fight there, perhaps the allies that, that were found at Quatre Bras weren't going to fight there. So he needed the bigger picture before he could come up with his final plan and therefore he could give orders to Ney. So Ney's orders to advance and take uh, and take position around Quatre Bras weren't given until later in the morning of the 16th. In fact, we estimate they got to Ney probably about 10.30, by which time Napoleon was increasingly confident that the Prussians were going to hold and that he was going to attack them. And therefore he wanted Ney to advance to Quatrebras so that he could march down the Namur road and that would bring his force onto the rear right of the Prussians and hopefully that sort of pincer movement, if you like, with Napoleon attacking them from the center would destroy the Prussian army and put it out of the campaign. And clearly that was, from Napoleon's perspective, that was the number one priority. So Ney, was waiting for his corps or his two corps to concentrate and he was waiting for the executive word of command before he advanced against Quatrevat. And what people don't seem to consider is that when Wellington arrived at Quatrevat about 10 o'clock, there was no sign of the French. There was a little bit of skirmishing on the picket line, but when Wellington went forward with the Prince of Orange to look from the high ground down towards Fran and towards Gosselli, they could hardly see any French troops. Wellington left the Prince of Orange confident that he was not going to be attacked. He didn't change the Prince of Orange's deployment of the second division. So everyone says that that was really Wellington endorsing uh, the Prince of Orange's deployment. But actually, Wellington wasn't particularly concerned because he didn't think the French were going to attack. He believed that Napoleon was concentrating his whole army against the Prussians. So we went off to meet Blücher to discuss how he could support the Prussians in the coming battle. And that's quite a significant uh, point too. And of course, it was only as Wellington left and listening, hearing the firing and getting back to Quatre Bras that he realized that actually there was an attack going on at Quatre Bras and, uh, and he needed to get his act together in order to, to stop the French seizing um, the crossroads from which he was supposed to be helping the Prussians. Again, you've just done a lovely little bridge for me there straight away. I'm, I'm liking this. You can always run the interview yourself because the French, as you say, do go on the offensive. And it doesn't take them long to make some pretty significant progress. If folks have walked the, the field, they'll know there's not a huge distance between Fran and Catrebra. You know, it, if you're not in the midst of a fight, you could do it in ooh, easily an hour, I would have said. Yeah. Um, something like that, yeah. depending on your, on your speed. But of course, the French don't just have an easy ride of it. They are opposed as they go. Why are they able to gain the ground so swiftly? Okay, I, I think the first thing is, of course, the, the Netherlands, the second Netherlands division, which were, were the only troops there at that time, about 8,000 men, were significantly outnumbered. Even though Ney advanced against them with only the second corps, we're talking there about 12,000 men, but they hadn't, even the French hadn't all come up at that time. So the Prince of Orange was trying to defend a fairly extensive front with only few troops. So he had to decide uh, about what sort of battle he was going to fight. Was he going to defy, was he going to fight a delaying battle, giving troops 
you know, giving reinforcements time to get forward, or was he going to defend Quatre Bras from a sort of single defensive position? And that is exactly latter that he he chose. That's how he deployed his men. But what he seemed to do is he felt that the the Bossu Wood to the west of the main road, because it dominated the road, that was a, a piece of vital ground that the French would have to take in order to take Quatre Bras if they were going to march up the Brussels Road. He therefore put quite a bit of his force in the Bossu Wood and actually a lighter force across the open ground that stretched across to the east. And then he had a reserve back at the, the crossroads himself. From the French perspective, of course, Ney wanted to capture Quatre Bras as quickly as possible. How do you do that? You do that, first of all, by advancing in column, which is a much quicker way of advancing, and you do it across the open ground. So if you like, Ney had pretty much called the Prince of Orange's bluff right from the beginning by punching straight for the Quatre Bras crossroads and not getting bogged down in the close country and the close fighting that he would have to have done if he was going to attack into the Bossu Wood. And therefore, the, the few troops that, that the Prince of Orange had deployed in the, uh, in the open ground, he had to quickly try and um, reinforce from his own reserve back at Quatre Bras. And those troops were, were uh, faced by a significant force of French infantry and cavalry. Remember, he had no cavalry at that time on the battlefield. The French vastly outnumbered him with artillery um, and therefore um, he was on a bit of a hiding to nothing really. He had very little chance of holding up what was a very strong French attack and therefore he was quite quickly um, pushed back and very close to breaking um, when the first Allied reinforcements ar arrived on the battlefield. We tend to talk quite a lot about the sort of questionable loyalty of the Dutch-Belgian troops Certainly, you know, that, that's a, said to be a, a contemporary fear. You know, these in a number of cases will have been men who fought in the French army. Are they going to stand and fight against their former comrades? And that's the concern that kind of circles around um, certain quarters. How justified are those fears? Or are we, with the benefit of hindsight, kind of guilty of overplaying them? I think certainly Wellington and the, the British higher command were more concerned about the, the Dutch and Belgian generals than they were perhaps the troops, because, as you say, many of them had fought uh, for the French. Um, interestingly, although Perponchet, who commanded the division then, had not and had fought against the French, you know, in the Dutch, sorry, in the Netherlands cavalry division, the commander, the divisional commander, and all three brigade commanders had fought in the French army. And in fact, one or two of them had only left the French army on Napoleon returning to power in, in, uh, in March. So only three months before they'd been serving in the French army. So they, I think Wellington was more worried about the commanders. I think as far as the, the, the soldiers are concerned, we need to just stress, of course, that we shouldn't really be referring to them as Dutch Belgians, because um, you had... The, the United Provinces, which we would call Holland, and you had Belgium, two separate entities uh, and two separate countries. But of course, the, the Congress of Vienna had joined them into a united um, kingdom of the Netherlands, and therefore they were Netherlands troops. But having said that, of course, there was a difference between 
the viewpoint of the, the Dutch and the viewpoint of the Belgians. So from the Bel sorry, from the from the Netherlands point of view, from the Dutch point of view, they had resented occupation from the French. They were reluctant soldiers in the French armies that they were forced to, to fight in. Uh, and they were desperate for independence and they had fought for their independence uh, as the French were pushed back. And therefore, I don't think there was any reason really for the Allies to worry about the loyalty of the Dutch. Different story, of course, to the Belgians, because at the end of the day, the Belgians had just lost their independence to the Netherlands. And the Dutch actually and the Belgians had a long history of fighting each other and being in competition with each other. So for the, for the Dutch, they were happy because the Netherlands had got bigger. They Now they had the Belgian part of the part of their new country. But of course, from the Belgian point of view, they'd lost their independence. And you've got to ask what the soldiers were thinking, fighting for a crown and a country that they had no loyalty towards. And so I certainly have some sympathy with the Belgians. Um, the Belgians, many more of the Belgian soldiers had fought in the, in the French army than the, than the Dutch had. And actually the French rated the Belgians as fighters and weren't quite so enthusiastic about the Dutch. So, um, the, so you know, not only were uh, perhaps the Allies worried about the loyalty, but the French also saw this as an opportunity and were hoping that the Belgians would would change sides, as the Saxon, uh, Saxons had done at, at Leipzig. And Napoleon opened a, a depot for Belgian deserters so he could raise a regiment of, of Belgian troops to fight in his army. Um, and some Belgians, it's true, um, despite what many people have uh, claimed, uh, many Belgians um, did desert, um, and but also uh, other nationalities as well. And the number of troops that were at this depot never exceeded 400. So it was going to be a less than a pretty weak uh, um, battalion. So um, I think we can all look back and say, you know, the Dutch, Belgians, the Netherlanders covered themselves in glory. Uh, they were loyal and they fought hard against the French. And I think that's absolutely true. But equally, I think you can you can worry about what the Belgians were thinking. Uh, and I think it was quite justified that some people had some concerns about their, their loyalty. So you've alluded to this just a touch already, but we let's go back to the battle. And we kind of left it at that point of Ney's advancing on the crossroads He's pushing the, the he's pushing the Prince of Orange's troops back, and you know it's it's one the French are, are one significant push away from the crossroads, and then they've got that anchor point from which they can then dominate the next move of the campaign. So, what saves the the Anglo Dutch army from the jaws of that defeat that's impending? Okay, I, this is a pretty simple answer. There are two things. First of all, reinforcements. Right, arriving right at the critical moment. I mean, Wellington had it said that when he arrived there, that there were some troops rushing out of the back of the Bossu Wood. And um, and uh, the Prince of Orange sort of said they were his troops. And he said, no, they're not, they're French. So Wellington's perspective, it may have been a bit of a tall story, was that the French were you know, just within a few hundred yards of the, of the crossroads. Um, so certainly reinforcements arriving, and secondly, Wellington arriving. Um, and so I think, um, we had an older, wiser head uh, taking command of the situation, uh, and we had the, the timely arrival, funny enough, of, of Picton's division um, that arrived, and, and with those, uh, Wellington was able to reinforce the, uh, the line, and it was probably that 
that, that really saved, uh, saved Wellington's skin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the story of Catraborough, isn't it? Sort of, well, from the, from the Allied side, we should, we should emphasize that, you know, troops arriving in the nick of time and being pushed straight into almost a kind of firefighting scenario of I need you there right now kind of thing. Um, but we can't not talk about the Duke of Brunswick because this is obviously a, a significant uh, and quite sad episode in the course of the battle. Obviously every death is sad, but Brunswick is, is and his cavalry are sent in. Why are they sent in and what kind of impact does his death have? Okay, um, well, the Brunswick, or part of the Brunswick Corps, uh, was some of the first Allied troops to arrive on the battlefield, um, along with Picton's division. And although I am sure that Wellington would have preferred not to have thrown them straight into battle, he really had no option. Um, Picton's division was deployed to the east of the, um, of the Brussels Road, the main road, and Wellington needed troops to reinforce the, the west of, the, of the, um, the Brussels Road, and those were the troops that he had available to him. And so although I have no doubt he would like to have held them back for a time, got them used to the, the sounds and sights of battle before they got committed and thrown into, into, um, into battle, he had no option but to send some of the battalions through, reinforced or supported, as you say, um, by some of, his, uh, of the Brunswick cavalry. The artillery hadn't arrived, so those poor troops had no artillery support. And as we've already said, you know, the French were very heavy on artillery uh, and were really pounding the Allied troops. Uh, and so the, the Brunswickers were deployed forward in line with Picton's troops without artillery support uh, and, uh, and with only cavalry to support them. But of course, they were, were no protection against artillery. So. The, the, the situation was so critical that Wellington had no option really but to deploy some of them straight into the, the line. And bear in mind, like I say, their lack of experience. You know, and, and many of the, of the eyewitnesses say how young the Brunswick troops were. They often refer to them as, as boys and lads. Um, so, you know, these weren't the troops that you would have wanted to throw into the front line uh, in a crisis. The, the Duke uh, had a lot of military experience um, and of course he I think everyone knows and, and I realize that he was quite an inspirational leader uh, as his troops were getting pounded um, by the by the French artillery he, he sat on his horse in front of them sm smoking his pipe and, and setting an example uh, for the for the young troops um, and of course on that basis, and as a, as a French infantry, uh, the swarms of French infantry skirmishers advanced, he was clearly going to be a prime target, and so it was no surprise that, uh, that he was going to be struck. 
Um, he handed over command to, to Colonel Olferman, again, quite an experienced and capable commander. Um, but the impact on the troops is, is hard to assess because the French broke the, the forward Brunswick uh, infantry, the Brunswick cavalry were were sent forward to try and throw the French back and give them some respite. Those in their turn were, were uh, driven back by the French cavalry and the forward battalions uh, ran back to, to Quatre Bras. How much that was the result of the death of the Duke and how much of that was the military situation of the time um, and, and a reflection perhaps of the casualties and the, and the horror of, of being pounded by artillery is a little bit uh, is a little bit hard to assess, but in retrospect, uh, it, it is felt that the um, the loss of the Duke um, did have a, a an impact on the troops as you'd as you'd expect it to. And you know we promised everyone a Durlan segment, so this seems like as good a moment as any to to give them their wish because folks will want this. We have to pause, don't we, to consider Durlan. Um, possibly the greatest what if of this whole campaign, possibly. There are a couple of other contenders there. Um, although admittedly, that'll be because I've always thought the idea of blaming Grouchy for not much to the sound of the guns was ludicrous. When you consider that you couldn't have got to Waterloo any faster than the Prussians did, and therefore wouldn't have made any difference. Rant us, that rant on Grouchy aside, unless you particularly want to indulge that rant. Um, I mean, you are the man to talk to on Grouchy. Um, Durlon, he spends the 16th of June essentially marching from Catrebras to Ligny and then back again. As far as I'm concerned, had he been committed to either battle, there is no question in my mind that that would have transformed the campaign. So who's to blame? And I know we've had discussions about this in the past. Who's to blame for the failure to exploit the potential that his corps represented? OK, I think the simple answer has got to be Marshal Ney. Um, and then a, a poor second him, Durlong himself, and I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain that. Um, so, but before we do that, we've got to set the scene. We've got uh, Ney with the Second Corps fighting at Quatre Bras. We've got Allied uh, reinforcements arriving on the battlefield, uh, and if you like, the battle turning against Ney. You've got Durlong marching his his corps forward to join up with Marshal uh, with Marshal Ney and as they march forward a messenger arrives from Napoleon uh, who who orders the corps to turn to the east and to march onto the uh, the western flank uh, of the Prussian army in order to ensure the destruction of the Prussian army so the whole of the corps turned off the main road and marched towards Ligny. Durlan claims that he was forward uh, towards uh, um, Quatre Bras when he got a messenger from his own corps telling him that his corps had turned to the east and were marching on Ligny on the order of Napoleon himself. Durlan rushes off to join um, his corps, sees that that's what's happening, and sends his, his chief of staff, Colonel uh, Laurent, to Ney to warn him, to warn Ney that he is now marching to the aid of Napoleon. So poor old Laurent joins uh, Ney just as the, as the battle is turning against him. And it is little surprise that Ney is a bit frustrated and a bit angry 
by this. Um, and so really without thinking, it's clear he cannot have thought about this. He sends Laurent back and demands that Durlan should march back to Quatre Bras to save the battle for, uh, battle for Ney there. Now, if Ney had done his maths right or looked at a map uh, or put some thought to it, he would have realized that by the time Durlan had turned his troops around and marched back to Quatre Bras, he would be too late to get involved in that battle. Now, it's perfectly legitimate to argue, well, Ney didn't know how far uh, Durlan's corps was, but what he was doing was clearly going against a direct order from Napoleon, and he was failing to understand why Ney, uh, sorry, why Napoleon wanted Durlan at Ligny, because he wanted to destroy the Prussian army, so then he could concentrate and destroy Wellington in his turn. So he wanted to destroy the Prussian army. The way of doing that was for these troops to, to get involved in the battle uh, for Ligny. Just as Durlan arrives on the battlefield, the message comes back from Ney, Durlan's immediate commander, you must now march to Quatrefrat. So Durlan is now faced with a dilemma. Um, what he decides to do is to leave one division, his fourth division, Durlan's division, uh, to uh, continue the march towards Ligny and one brigade of his cavalry division. Um, and then he turns around uh, the other three divisions and marches back to Quatre Bras. And as we say, he gets there too late to have any impact on Quatre Bras. And Durot, who's told by Durlan to be very careful and cautious in his advance against Prussian flank, really doesn't get involved, it does get involved in the fighting, but by that time it's really late in the battle. And he's so cautious that it has no effect on the fighting at Ligny. And obviously, uh, for, to Napoleon's great frustration, uh, that means that Durlan uh, makes no impact at Ligny, and we know makes no impact at, uh, at Quatre Bras as well. I think, as you rightly say, I think if all of Durlan's troops had arrived at, at, um, at Quatre Bras, there is a, 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 an arguable case to say um, that Wellington would have been uh, would have been pushed off the uh, of the crossroads. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, we could discuss this all day. Um, there's a whole interesting thing about the arrival of um, of Durlan at, at Ligny and Napoleon's sort of not having received the intelligence that he needed or perhaps just not having enough of a grasp of where everybody was to to know that, you know, that's Durlan, that's not Wellington. This is the plan coming together. Um, but that is a conversation for, uh, I guess, another day, unless you want to say something about that now. Well, all I was going to say is that Napoleon was expecting uh, Ney to pretty much seize Quatre Bras without much of a fight. So he was expecting Ney to then send the troops that, that Napoleon had ordered him to down the main road, which would have brought them into the rear uh, right flank of the Prussian army. Of course, by calling Durlan across from where Durlan actually was, he brought them in sort of due east, and therefore it was as much on the right, on the left flank of Napoleon's army as it was the right flank of the Prussians. And so both of them were uh, surprised um, by the appearance of these troops, as you say, where they came in. And Napoleon had to waste quite a lot of time to determine that they were French troops rather than either Wellington's troops or another force of Prussians. So taking it back to, to Catra Bra, 
by 5 p.m. It always strikes me that, you know, this battle, it still seems to be in the balance. Why is Kellerman sent forward with his cuirassiers? Is that a desperation? Is it the right move at the right time? Because they themselves make some pretty remarkable progress. Yeah. OK, well, the answer to your question is desperation. No doubt about that. Uh, Kellerman's uh, brigade, the only brigade out of his four that was available to him on the battlefield. The other three brigades were too far away to have any impact on the battle. Well, less than 800 men. So it's quite a weak brigade, um, 750 or so, depending on who you read. Uh, and they were charging by well, at that time, Wellington had 20,000 men in the field. Now they weren't all in the front line and they weren't all uh, combat capable, but it was, uh, it was just absolute desperation to launch so few troops against uh, a, a largely infantry, uh, infantry force. About that time, Wellington was beginning to feel that the advantage was swinging in his favour. Um, you know, and yet now he was reflecting that he was facing a, a deteriorating situation. And it was at that moment that Ney received uh, an order from Napoleon uh, that had been written by Soult, uh, saying it was time that he must send troops to help Napoleon out. And, the, and, the, and the, this, this note included those famous lines, the fate of France is in your hands. So just as he's losing control of the battle, Napoleon is saying the fate of France is in your hands, you've got to do something. Um, and so, you know, Ney had to decide what to do. So he had to make a last desperate gamble to try and seize the crossroads so that he could send some troops perhaps down the main road to support Napoleon. And again, you know, as if timing couldn't have been worse for Ney, just as he was contemplating this message from Napoleon saying, manoeuvre towards me, and he was losing the battle, he then gets information that Derlon's corps has been sent over to Ligny. So he doesn't have any troops available to launch this attack because the second corps had been fighting for the battle throughout the battle and were getting pretty much exhausted and no doubt probably short of ammunition too. You know, the light cavalry division that he had uh, from the second corps, again, had been committed a number of times. This brigade of cuirassiers were the only fresh troops that he had available. So in his anger and his frustration, he got hold of Kellerman and ordered him to charge uh, the Allied line. Um, there was really, there could have been no hope for the success of that charge. And the success that they did achieve is all the remarkable for that, um, that they, um, of course, uh, broke the, the second 69th and the South Lincolns and, and took one of their colours. Both the 33rd um, and the, uh, I think it was the 73rd, uh, on being charged, broke and ran and took refuge in the Bossu Wood, leaving only uh, the 30th holding firm in square. The, the, the cuirassiers bypassed them uh, and carried on right up to Quatre Bras itself. In fact, there's some stories which say they had cuirassiers riding into the into the courtyard of the Quatre Bras farm. I find that a little bit hard to believe, but there's no. It seems that there's no doubt that the, those few men actually got right up to up to the Quatre Bras crossroads um, before they came under so much fire and had lost so much organisation that they had no option um, but to uh, but to withdraw again. How does Ney respond to that? Because that's a, quite a startling thing. Because you, you, as you say, he's getting all of these messages. He's making this last ditch attempt. 
he must know that you know the the odds are not stacked in his favor when he sends Kellerman in and yet the reports the intelligence must have come back at some point you know we're we're doing really well um the crossroads is in touch and yet as you say you know Dolon's been sent off he's got nothing to capitalize on that is there any sense of how he responded to this of you know if only I had a division right here right now I could achieve x mm. well all the divisions of, of Rain's corps were committed as I say um the the extent of the charge was out of range of the French artillery uh, and it does seem that none had been was pushed forward uh, on the trace of the of the charge in order to try and give it some support. But I can imagine that the, the ground it would have been quite difficult for that. And I suspect the charge was fairly brief. <laughs> it, it reached its high watermark at Quatre Bras and it turned back and came back almost as quickly, if not quicker than it, than it went forward. Um, and of course, as some British troops, some allied troops had been bypassed by the cuirassiers. So if you'd have pushed artillery forward while it was limbered up, there was a good chance that the, the you know, those crews would have been shot down or horses would have been shot down by the um, by the, the Allied infantry. And of course, as you say, there were there were no fresh infantry available to Ney and therefore he couldn't have supported it um, with infantry because he really didn't have um, much available. Um, so it was a desperate gamble. There's no doubt. And I don't think it was I don't I don't believe even Ney could have been surprised that uh, that it failed. Let's focus now on the fighting towards the end of the day, because the battle does continue uh, well into the evening. Um, essentially, sort of darkness is part of what brings us to a halt, besides exhaustion. Talk us through what happens. I always feel that there's a tendency to just sort of gloss over this bit and go, OK, it ends in a, um, a sort of a stalemate and, you know, no, neither side has really gained much over the course of the day. And we don't focus on what feels like a fair bit of fighting over the landscape that you know the, the the battle has ebbed and flowed on over the course of the day mm. okay uh, i think first of all we've got to understand again what the the numbers are here because actually you know nay had received no further reinforcements than he had at about three o'clock when hit the whole of ray's second corps was was present and those were about sixteen thousand troops let's say or 16 and a half with a, with the cover that it had available and about 50 odd guns. You know, the the Anglo-Netherlands army by that time counted over 22,000. They had cavalry there, they had 40 odd guns, they were almost outnumbering the French in artillery as well. So that the numerically the, the odds had, had turned around and of course a lot of uh, many of the Allied troops were quite fresh. Yes they were tired from marching but they were fresh to the fight. By this time all the troops that, that Ney had were the troops that had been fighting there all day, as I say, probably exhausted, uh, very hot day, um, and probably short of ammunition. He had nothing left to fight back. But equally, he had advanced, I think probably it's fair to say, given the, even the Allied accounts, that the troops had probably almost taken the whole of the Bossu Wood, if, if like this is a French high water mark, and that the French infantry were only a few hundred metres short of Quatre Bras itself. Um, and so you know, the French had achieved an awful lot. What they hadn't done is have sufficient strength to actually seize Quatre Bras. And then, of course, they faced 
uh, the situation where they were now being overwhelmed by the Allied reinforcements. So having got so far forward, the, the last hour or two of the, uh, the day was now Wellington taking advantage of his, uh, his superior numbers and beginning to push the French back. Um, and therefore there was uh, a, perhaps a little bit uncoordinated, but a general advance uh, against the French who exhausted their cavalry charge, just defeated, um, were now beginning to struggle uh, and slowly and surely the allies would be, were able to push the French back, right back to their start line uh, that, they'd, uh, that they'd started on in the morning. And once the French had got there, it appears that they did then go firm and the Allied troops that were pursuing them got held up at that point, And that was a point that the, that the battle drew to an end. So there was quite a large Allied advance at the end of the day uh, of probably a kilometer or so, which pushed the French back to the, the start line of the morning. Um, but I don't know that there was very heavy fighting there. It was it was more of a French fighting withdrawal than it than it was an Allied general attack. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I've always been curious about that. It's it's always nice when you do one of these episodes and you learn something rather than just ask questions that you think you know an answer to already. Um, can I ask about your just sort of your general thoughts about the the landscape of Catrabra itself. Um, obviously, a lot's changed now. The the Bodabasu, the wood has gone. In, there's literally nothing left of it. Um, yes, you've got a, a few memorials that have been put up. The farm is is now gone. Um, very kind of sad thing in itself. You know, it's such a, a key piece of history has been flattened. Um, obviously, there's a nice little petrol station there now that wasn't there originally. I'm guessing. Um, but it's, it's an undulating landscape, isn't it? It's worth saying to folks, you know, this is farmland and there are signs up saying this is private land. Please don't go wandering over my crops. Um, so you have a little bit less freedom to roam than you perhaps do at Waterloo, although again, you have to be mindful that you know, this is a working landscape and you shouldn't stand on the farmer's turnips or his, his wheat or whatever. Um, but it, it's, it's a landscape that, that ripples, if you know what I mean. How much of a role do you think that had to play? And I'm thinking in terms of particularly Ney having to read this situation and, and Wellington having that reputation for hiding men behind ridges. And there are lots of dips in the landscape where he could have hid men. Do you think that has a role to play in terms of how Ney approaches the battle? Um, first of all, I'd say you know, it's really difficult to understand a battle without having stood on the ground and looked at it. And it is a tragedy that the farm was knocked down. It was a tragedy that the that the wood was cut down. Bearing in mind, it was Wellington that had it cut down. Um, but there is still plenty to see. And even though, as you say, you can't wander across the fields there, you know there are sufficient tracks, sufficient roadways for you to have a really good feel for the ground. And without which you can't really understand the battle. You're absolutely right. It wasn't a typical sort of Wellingtonian position with a ridge line behind which he could hide his troops. Um, but then Wellington are never expected to fight there. Um, but as you say, there are, it is marked by the succession of, of low ridge lines, most of which are cut by small streams in between. And I think the biggest impact that that had on the battle was more the fact that it was very good country for the French artillery. 
because they were able to advance bound by bound onto these small ridge lines, which gave them a great field of fire. Uh, and although, of course, the uh, Allied troops at times in the battle were able to hide in those hollows, actually, the, the sort of, once the French had taken Gemioncourt, the large farm right in the middle, and advanced onto the high ground beyond that, actually, there was nowhere for the Allied uh, to hide except in the wood, um, and the and the you know the the French artillery really did have a big impact on this battle, um, and you know when the when Picton's division advanced and really pushed the, the first French attack back, the reason the British turned and withdrew again was the the pounding that they were taking primarily from the French artillery. The French did the infantry did rally and fight back, but the, the artillery is what is mentioned so much by the, for, by the, British, uh, the British accounts uh, and the clouds of French skirmishers who actually used the farmland, these little ridges and the, and the crops to hide uh, and bring the allies under, under fire. So it's a fascinating little battle field to visit. I wouldn't put people off, uh, but what you could do is be fairly careful about where you, um, where you, fine to, to park up and walk and, and look at the battlefield, because obviously the main road to Brussels is, is very busy um, as well. But it's certainly worth a visit. Uh, you just have to be fairly careful uh, about where you go. Uh, and a good map of the area uh, is, is, you know, I would strongly recommend. Absolutely. Um, having been there myself and spent only a morning there, which was a shame, but I enjoyed it enormously. There are places that you can park, provided you're careful, folks. Um, but yes, well worth a visit. Um, it, it's, as you say, it's just a shame that the farm has gone. And um, yeah, be careful about the stinging nettles as well, is the only other thing that I'd say. Um, having suffered myself, uh, plenty of dock leaves around, fortunately, to deal with that. But yeah, watch out for the nettles, folks, because uh, even in sturdy shoes, they manage to find their way through. So ultimately, to cut off my ramble about foliage on the Catrebra uh, battlefield, who wins this? I often talk about it as a bloody stalemate. Is that fair? Um, it's an interesting question because I think this is something everyone could discuss for some time. And I think it depends on the perspective that you want to take. I think from Wellington's perspective, he had won a tactical victory. He defended Quatre Bras and he'd eventually thrown back the French back to their, back to their start lines. Um, so tactically, I think you can call it an allied victory. It's easier to argue that Wellington actually suffered a strategic defeat. At the end of the day, after when he met with Blücher, he promised Blücher that he would uh, manoeuvre in such a way to support Blücher. As you probably know, or many people might know, actually what was promised at that meeting varies depending on whose account you read, whether it was Wellington's or whether it was a Prussian account. But whatever happened, what was actually said, Wellington left there believing that he was going to manoeuvre in such a way as to support the Prussians against the French. And he was unable to do that because of the battle that he ended up in with Ney. So you could argue, if you were French, that Wellington had suffered a strategic defeat because Ney had prevented Wellington's army from interfering uh, with Napoleon's victory over the Prussians. From Ney's perspective, of course, he suffered a tactical defeat uh, by failing capture Quatre Bras, and he also uh, 
suffered a strategic defeat because as far as Wellington was concerned, part of Ney's job was to send uh, many of his troops to Napoleon's support in destroying and defeating the Prussians. However, you could also argue from the strategic uh, perspective that, that Ney had a strategic victory because he prevented Wellington from marching to the aid of the Prussians. So there's three different, or there are two very different perspectives. And I know that all of those are arguable. And I think that's why people prefer to call it a stalemate because um, it's all a, a, a little bit of a mess. But each of those really is true. Tactical victory for Wellington, strategic defeat, tactical defeat for Ney, uh, a strategic success and a strategic, and a strategic defeat. Yes, as you say, messy. But hey, this is why we love doing this job, right? Because history is messy. And if it was all very simple and black and white, folks like you and me wouldn't have a job. Um, Andrew, an absolute joy. Before we go, do you want to um, comment on my little rant about Grouchy or do you want to save that for another time? Oh, blimey. I, I've listened to a number of people speaking about Grouchy. Um, and of course, I, I've read a book I've written a book about it, so I've I've looked at all the French camps and and uh, all the French orders that I can find. Um, I have no doubt that there was never any chance of Grouchy appearing at Waterloo, and I don't think he could have done that without having the benefit of hindsight. Um, the whole thing about marching to the sound of the guns uh, is a an accepted, if you like, tactic. But that you're, that's only a tactic if you are part of the army that is fighting the battle. Grouchy was not part of Napoleon's army fighting at Waterloo. It had a separate mission and its own force structure. And therefore, if he'd have marched to the sound of the guns, he would have gone against the orders that he received from Napoleon. Uh, and he would have gone against general tactical uh, and grand tactical practice of the time. I think that's probably all we've got time for. Absolutely. But there is a whole interview to be had there, which uh, we can perhaps look forward to scheduling in the future, because you've written a, a cracking book there. And I would love to send those people who like to blame everything on Grouchy away with a flea in their ear about how it's just a little bit more complex than perhaps uh, some folks would like to lead us believe. Andrew, as I say, an absolute joy. So your books, I'm going to go through them all, folks. Make Get a pen and paper ready and jot these down because in the run-up to Christmas, you're going to want to add these to your list. So, Grouchy's Waterloo, add that to your list. Obviously, we'll, we'll try and schedule in a, an interview on that in due course. Waterloo, Route and Retreat. The French at Waterloo Eyewitness Accounts. There's two volumes of that. And Talavera, Wellington's First Victory in Spain. And of course, Catrebra Prelude to Waterloo. Andrew, you're not on social media, are you? Now, I'm afraid I'm too old for that. Um, uh, never never telling, say never, my friend. I keep telling myself that I should be, um, but I'm, I'm afraid not. Uh, I mean, if anybody has listened to this and has got any question or points they really want to uh, put, uh, make, then I would be delighted to hear from them. But they'll have to manoeuvre that through you, uh, through you, Zach, or from, through the website, through the website. Absolutely. Get in touch, folks. And I can always forward things to Andrew. Very happy to do that. Andrew, thank you ever so much for your time. Have a very Merry Christmas if I don't see you beforehand. And thanks for joining us today. Yeah, real pleasure. Thanks very much, Zach. And a happy Christmas to everyone out there. Thanks a lot. Quick favour to ask, folks. Remember to like, share, retweet and leave a review. 
It'll take a few seconds, but it makes a big impact on the algorithms, which means that the show reaches more people. Thank you to those of you who are already doing it. It's making a phenomenal difference. Listeners are up 300% on last year, a thousand people are tuning into every episode, and hundreds are listening to this show more than any other. That is down to you. Of course, none of that would have been possible without my Patreon supporters. There was a point in the last 12 months where I seriously considered ending the show. That the podcast is still out and going from strength to strength is down to your support. If you are interested in joining their ranks, check the link in the description. There are all kinds of perks. It's not a something for nothing deal. And you can even now request content. You can demand certain episodes within particular tiers. If a regular subscription isn't for you, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the description. And as ever, thank you so much for your support. Shoutouts and much love, as always, go to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Gur Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham and Stephen Gillen, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond and Stephen Coulson. I'll be back in a fortnight with a Christmas special. Yes, you heard me right, a Christmas special. Who said there are delusions of grandeur on this show? I will be joined by a host of great guests as we debate the most misunderstood person of the Napoleonic era in what I hope will be something that matches the whole idea of Christmas being the season of goodwill and redemption for all mankind. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.